Hey guys, thanks for taking the drive down State Street. In today's episode, we welcome resident nurse Beth Pauls. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to State Street, where we give voice to the everyday person. Hey guys, this is The Voiced and the co-host Nick Kleitch, and with me as always, Cole, Jeremy, and Craig. Guys, what's going on? Nick, we're uh, we're doing good. We brought on someone today who actually, you know, is pretty relevant to my life because lo and behold, we're recording this on uh, February 24th. I was diagnosed with covid Monday, February 21st. And Beth has actually worked in and around a bunch of COVID patients. So she was able to explain to me what is actually happening in my body. And I thought that was extremely cool. So um, by the time this episode comes out, I should hopefully be out of quarantine. Um, if not, maybe something has gone wrong. But I'm, I'm hoping that that is the day, literally the day this comes out is the day I'm supposed to get out of quarantine. So hopefully I can listen to it in my car and not inside of my room. Jeremy, obviously, we hope you're doing okay. Uh, secondly, I just want to address the Craig thing. I feel like if you're a State Street resident right now, and we keep talking about Craig, you're like, get the hell like off this Craig thing. And Nick loves to introduce it. Nick has like officially made this robot a part of our podcast. I don't know what the deal is, uh, but to each their own, I guess. Anyways, in terms of our guest, Beth was phenomenal. Uh, so knowledgeable, so full of wisdom, so full of experience, and so just friendly and easy to talk to. She Nick says it in the podcast and in the interview, but she dumbed it down for all us dumb people who have no idea really what's going on. And she made it sound a lot more simple than it is. She she dumbed it down. She watered it down uh, to, so that it makes sense for anybody that listens to this. Uh, so hopefully, yeah, people go into this with an open mind, um, and and open hearts, um, and willingness to just learn maybe, you know, whatever your beliefs are, just be willing to learn. I think that's all we're about on this podcast. That's all we ask. Yeah. I really wanted to get Beth on the podcast to, uh, get through all of the, um, messages that we receive from the media as far as COVID-19, what's coronavirus? Hey, have I heard this? Has this ever come up before? And Beth really just does a nice job of laying out a lot of information. And Beth does say that she is not a medical professional, so I'm glad that she addresses that. However, one of the most prepared guests that we've ever had on State Street, and thank you again, Beth, for all the hard work you put into producing this episode. Uh, I love people that can shoot facts, whether you like it or not. Um, and that's what her objective was throughout this conversation. And we go into a lot of different details on things surrounding COVID, COVID directly, how it gets spread, et cetera, et cetera. But yes, as Cole said, I would definitely be open-minded to maybe learn something or look at something from a different angle, but uh, I'm not going to keep kicking the can down the road. State Street residents, let's tune in and let's get after it. What's going on? Not a whole lot. What's going on with you guys? Nothing much. Welcome to the show. We are so excited to get you onto State Street. Um, I'm going to have these guys, I know we already did this off air, but I'm going to have these guys just do a small introduction and then we'll go ahead and get into the meat and potatoes. Sounds wonderful. My name is Cole. Uh, 
We did exchange pleasantries before jumping on, but just to kind of reinforce, we are so, so excited to have you on. Uh, it's always so fun when we can have a factual mind. We we love energetic podcasts. We love podcasts that are lighthearted and fun and, and maybe even easygoing at times, but there's nothing like a factual podcast where it's raw data. Uh, and I am so excited that you're bringing that today. You're going to be such a fantastic guest. I think the, uh, the state street residents are going to gain so much knowledge, so much wisdom, uh, from you and because of this. And we just couldn't be more thankful that you're taking a little time out of your busy, busy schedule to be with us this evening. Yeah. Completely unscripted. We have someone that I'm going to learn a lot from because I actually currently do have COVID-19 and this is a, uh, yeah, I, I'm just sitting in my room for, for the time being. So yeah, it's going to be really cool to kind of like hear firsthand experience about the thing I am dealing with currently. Yes. Wonderful. So thank you guys. So just to give Beth a little bit of introduction and I am going to allow her to give her own form of this, but uh, she uh, has been in the fire with COVID-19 since the inception way back, if we can remember a time pre-COVID all the way through and and now into today. And one thing that we had shared off air, but I'm going to share with the residents as well too, this is a very fact-based episode. We're going to cut through all the bullshit of everything out there on COVID-19 and hear from someone who not only knows the subject matter very well, but someone who has experienced it uh, day in and day out and all the implications of that. So Beth, if you wouldn't mind, just go ahead and give a very detailed introduction of, of yourself, where you work, um, and then we'll get the ball rolling. Absolutely. So my name is Beth Pauls. I am a registered nurse in the state of Iowa. Um, I will say that I live in Iowa City and I do work in the general area. I won't state the exact hospital that I work at just to provide some privacy for my employer as well as some of the patients that I've worked with in the past. Um, it's very important to me that I do protect that just because there are some legal ramifications around sharing experiences and stories. It's not my intention to exploit any particular person. So I just want to disclose that information. Um, and I am also not a medical doctor. So everything that I have have said and am going to say on this podcast, um, it's all very much researchable. You can find all of this information as long as you know where to look. So today I'm just your guide in learning where to look, you know, what to know, what to find. And I just want to answer your questions openly and honestly based on my experiences and my knowledge. Happy to be here. Yes, thank you for doing so. Um, and I did not know that the the, discam the disclaimer was going to come out. So thank you for, for hitting that early in the episode. So um, if yeah. you wouldn't mind, let's do this. Let's start here. So we have talked about an umbrella of what coronavirus is versus what COVID-19 is. So go ahead and just elaborate on that umbrella of what corona is versus what we're actually seeing in the news as what COVID-19 is specifically. Yeah, absolutely. So um, from a scientific standpoint, you have viruses, just a very generalized, you know, term, if you will. So there's multiple different kinds of viruses. You know, we've got HIV, there's influenza viruses, we've got varicella, which is the virus that causes chicken pox. Um, and then there's coronavirus. So just in general, coronavirus is a type of virus. COVID-19, which the actual specific terminology for COVID-19 would be SARS-CoV-2. That is a type of coronavirus. 
there have been other coronaviruses out there. Um, there have been other treatments for other coronaviruses out there. But COVID-19, the one that the media is talking about now, the one that is causing this global pandemic, um, that is a specific subtype of a coronavirus. So it's important to understand that when we talk about coronavirus, um, well, first of all, you kind of want to know which one we're talking about. Recently, yes, it's COVID-19, just because that is you know, what we're dealing with currently. Um, but other types of coronavirus that you may have heard of in the past would be MERS, which stands for Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome. Or, uh, yeah, and then SARS, which is, um, oh gosh, let me look back. Long story short, SARS was a uh, different, that one originated in about 2002, and it was a very big problem at the time, but um, they've kind of been treated since. And we do see it, but it's handled. So it's good to gotcha. understand that there are different types. Yep. So um, as far as that umbrella goes, coronavirus is called coronavirus because of the way that it looks. It has spike proteins on the actual virus. It looks kind of like a crown, which is why it's called coronavirus. So that's part of the reason why nomenclature is like that. <laughs> yeah. When you first shared that with me, I was like, huh, I guess I didn't even think about it like that. but. Uh, just based on your description there, um, have we encountered coronavirus in the past in comparison to COVID-19, or is this our first time battling it at this level? That's a really good question. Um, I would say it's so different coronaviruses have been problematic, but they've generally been kept pretty regional. So um, MERS was confined more so to the Middle East. It wasn't like a global pandemic. Um, same with SARS. That was an issue in the late 90s, early 2000s that occurred in China and other Asian countries. But were still very problematic. They were still both uh, respiratory viruses, you know, that caused similar symptoms and illness, but they were confined to the areas in which they originated, um, relatively speaking, compared to COVID-19, which has become, you know, a pandemic. And the word pandemic just means that it is an infection that has not been confined to a geographical area. It's a worldwide spread infection. Perfect. Well, and I, this is more an opinion question than fact-based. What influence has the media had on making this appear as I shouldn't say appear, but um, like that it is a pandemic because those things obviously had occurred in the past, but the only thing that's different from now until then was the ability to record things and post things online. Do you think that has helped create self-awareness around like people traveling on a global scale now or do I think that the ability to post on social media and things like that have influenced the spread of disease? Is that kind of what you're... Uh, increase the awareness. Increase awareness? I mean, yes, we've always had media outlets. We've always had news outlets um, through those time periods. I mean, I would say increase of accessibility to different facets of the internet, to media, to things like that, it does allow increased awareness, but there's also increased 
um, just like conspiracy and, and false facts or just things that aren't true. And so you have to be able to differentiate between what is actually accurate. You have to be able to find reputable sources um, because a lot of people, it's very easy to just put information out there because anybody has access to create anything on the internet nowadays. But it's it's important to understand you know, who's doing the research, who is doing research that is reputable and has, you know, like legal ramifications that allow them to produce unbiased information. Um, but another thing, too, is it's really important to understand bias, you know, in the media and to understand, you know, it's not always a bad thing to have bias in the media, but you have to understand it and see it. You know, you know how is this impacting the data that I'm absorbing, if you will. So in relation to COVID, it, it's difficult because it's so new. Many people, um, it's specific to COVID-19. You know, there's a lot of fear around illness because I don't think that a lot of people um, are comfortable with science. I think a lot of people just automatically assume that it's going to be over their head and that it is just not understood well and that we should just leave that to the researchers and the doctors and the scientists. In reality, I mean, as long as it's verbalized in a way that people can understand, I think that there's a lot of power in being able to just have discussions like the one that we're having today, where is you can ingest just the raw data, we can move forward and, you know, we can learn a lot about this and not feel so much fear. So, I love it. To kind of come back to the beginning of your original question, I think there's increased awareness, but it's all over the place on what that awareness is or what that awareness means or how people are interpreting the data that they see. So yes and no. I mean, it just kind of depends on the person. Gotcha. Well, right before Jeremy kicks off here, one thing I did like how you pose that is awareness in and of itself. And we've talked on this podcast, social media itself is a tool. It's not created for bad or good. It's simply a tool. Now, this episode is not going to be predicated on you know how social media influences pandemics, but I do think it is relevant in today's world because we can see all these different things from all these different parts of the world and it can get spread so quickly. Uh, Jeremy, go ahead though with your question. It wasn't really a question. It was more of like a comment because it, it did spark some some thought provoking or some thoughts in my brain. Like just because someone has a, a blue check mark or like a check mark on Instagram or Twitter doesn't mean they're an expert, guys. Like I see that a ton where like someone like even in my field of like sports, like they'll have a blue check mark, throw out just randomly wrong information that you can like fact check within like two seconds. So I mean if if you see something that seems too just wild to be real. You can probably Google it and, and see if it is actually true or not. Absolutely. And I would say another thing, too, is if you're someone who's very interested in having this wealth of knowledge and wanting to learn a lot about COVID-19, just just look, just Google, just research, just throw yourself out there and try to find what you can find. If you find multiple sources that are saying the same pieces of information and you cannot refute that they're wrong, I mean, more than likely, there's some truth to that. Is everything presented in a way that is like, without a doubt, completely 100% true? Other than scientific data, what is and what isn't 100% true? I mean, everything is truly subjective in the sense that some things that we're learning about COVID, I mean, it's just pieces of people's lives. It's, it's, it's things that you can't quantify. You can't make that into data. And actually, that is a huge facet of healthcare and being a nurse. I mean, 
I have to assess someone's pain every shift. I can't see that. I can't tell someone how they feel. I can never quantify that more than just what someone tells me. Um, so that's subjective data. Whereas we have objective data in healthcare as well. And that's something that I can't deny. If I take your temperature and it's 37 degrees Celsius, you can't tell me it's not. I just took it with a machine that told me, you know, yes, this is the temperature. So it's, it's funny because COVID-19, there's facets of both of those objective and subjective pieces. And so a lot of it is like, where do we draw the line? And a lot of people can't differentiate between those two pieces. Um, and that's not their fault. That's just truly, once again, just, you know, uh, I think that there's kind of a misconception that science is going to be over everyone's head and science is off limits to the public. And that's not true. I mean, the whole facet of healthcare is that I'm taking care of everyday people every single day. And it comes down to human life, which we all live. So it's really, really important to be able to just put yourself out there, try to learn. You're going to fail. You're going to come up on stuff that's not true. And that's okay. You're not a bad person if you believe something that you thought was true and it's not. It is your job to understand, you know, how can I challenge myself? And I push myself to find what is actually true and to say, you know, I have to be able to cite what I say because it could hurt someone if I spread false information. I, I was just going to say I'm on fire right now. That was a great response, Beth. So thank you for going into detail. Um, I'm going to ask this question and you're going to probably think like, what the heck? But I really think this is important to ask. Is COVID-19 a real virus? That is not a wild question to ask. It is a real virus. I have had patients okay, thank who you. with confirmed COVID and they tell me, no, I don't have it. It's not real. And no offense to them whatsoever, because I understand truly how it feels to believe in something so firmly. It's always just wild to me because I never quite know how to respond to that. But there are there are people. I mean, there are people that believe that it's not real, and there are people that believe that it is a falsified um, conspiracy that was created by different governments, um, different entities. But regardless of how it started, where it came from, yes, it is. It is a confirmed virus. Um, we can take viral particles, look at them under a microscope, and say yes, that is that is a coronavirus. So if I mean. That's what labs are for. Yeah. And we did, like I said, we weren't going to get too far in the weeds there, but I did want to ask someone who has seen it and maybe under a microscope quite literally and can confirm that it is real. Um, now let's get on to another kind of, we'll say hairy aspect or maybe a highly misunderstood aspect. So my first question is going to be how a virus gets into your body. And then the second you'll understand more so where I'm going with maybe a misconception of this virus. Sure. Okay. So I will start with uh, viral transmission. Um, so viral transmission is really interesting because a virus is not considered a living thing. A lot of people don't understand um, where we kind of differentiate on why viruses aren't living compared to uh, like bacteria when it comes to illness. So a virus is not considered living because a virus is not made out of its own cells. Um, they can't generate their own energy. 
technology. They cannot replicate uh, with other viruses in the way that bacteria cells can replicate individually and humans can replicate via reproduction. Um, a virus can't utilize itself or another virus to generate more viruses. So what it does is it relies on taking over a different cell in order to regenerate or to reproduce its genetic material. Um, so in that regard, basically what happens, um, especially with um, COVID-19, because it is a virus, it will target a cell. That cell will engulf the virus. It will kind of accept it, um, envelop it. And then once that virus is inside of your cell, um, it will release its genetic content. So what that means then is that the virus will essentially take over um, the part of your individual cell that tells the cell what it is or what it makes or how it regenerates. The virus says, nah, I'm gonna use the cell to make more viruses. So instead of reproducing energy or reproducing other healthy cells, suddenly your body is making more viruses, which is why viruses need a host. A lot of people are familiar with that concept. Um, and that's why it's, it's really problematic when you get sick with a virus, because the minute that it infiltrates your body, one of your cells, it's utilizing your, the nucleus of the cell, um, which is the place in which your individual cell stores genetic information um, to make more viruses. And it just doesn't stop. And as you're talking about this, Beth, that's what's going on in Jeremy's body as we speak. So it's really <laughs> cool that we're on that topic of conversation. Um, the yeah. follow-up <laughs> follow I had to that is I know there's a lot of misunderstanding as to I get it. I spread it to Cole. Cole is asymptomatic, but then he spreads it to Jeremy. Jeremy gets it very badly. If you have any kind of insight as to how that works, I think that would also be a very good topic of conversation as well. Sure. Um, so there's still research being done on why COVID might present as asymptomatic to some people, and then some people have pretty strong symptoms. But that's not new to know epidemiology or microbiology as a whole um, some people do just have no symptoms when they carry something in their body and that just comes down to your immune system's response to fight something off when it comes in um, I'll be honest it it's truly just different for every person there it's I mean you could have influenza and it's the same exact thing where one person doesn't show any symptoms at all you carry it your body does its thing, gets rid of it, and you don't even know. And then the next person, you know, is just ridiculously sick. So that's not new to COVID-19. I can promise you that. Okay. Um, so that's a basic characteristic or like a lifestyle of any virus. So that's not specific to COVID. Correct. Correct. Okay. Um, and the thing about viruses too as compared to bacteria, is sometimes it's not going to spark any physiologic change. So a physiologic change would be like a physical sign or symptom that we would see. So kind of going back to that objective data versus subjective data, um, a bacterial infection might cause a fever. That's very common. Viral infections don't always cause a fever. So like 
that's part of the reason why, you know, if all of those physiologic changes are not occurring in a viral infection, that's when it's considered asymptomatic. So some people can have some symptoms, like some of those physiologic changes, um, and some people can have none. Some people can have all of the symptoms. It really just depends on the individual person and your individual immune system. It would take me, you know, like three days straight to explain the immune system and um, how <laughs> each person comes to having a different level of immunity to different things. Um, but just know that it is variable on yourself as a person. And a lot of that has to do with just various things you've come into contact with, your body's ability to fight things off based on what it knows is an intruder and what it doesn't know is an intruder. That kind of accelerates um, the next part of your question. You talked a little bit about transmission, um, which is a huge part of COVID-19. It's That's very, very, very hot in the media and was for quite some time because obviously we've been asked to wear masks and to social distance. Um, to use hand sanitizer and things like that. Um, those are all things that we're utilizing that we have control over to prevent the spread of transmission. Coronavirus is spread via droplets. So that means that if you have coronavirus in your system, um, you could spread that to someone via your saliva or any bodily fluids um, if someone is within a meter of you. So, yes, I might not, um, you know, have my mouth on someone's face, but if I'm talking to you without a mask on, there's going to be saliva that just naturally flies off your tongue and into the air if you're standing next to somebody. So if they're too close to you, that could drop on their skin, that could get in their eyes, that could get on their nose, their tongue, whatever. And then all of a sudden, you know, now you have introduced this virus into someone else's body. So by wearing masks, you're preventing yourself from giving those droplets to the next person. You're keeping it confined. Um, and you're also preventing it to someone else or to talk. It's not going to land in your nose or on your mouth. Truly, wearing a mask is more helpful, if you will, for the first bit of what I said. It does a better job at preventing you from spraying your saliva and your bodily fluids on other people, which is why it's really, really, really important that everyone wears a mask because you never know who might be a carrier, even if you're asymptomatic. So one of the biggest arguments is that, um, you know, oh, I don't have it. I know I'm negative. I know that I don't need to wear it blah, blah, blah. I don't want to wear a mask. Other people are wearing their masks. Well, yes, but if you're not wearing a mask, you are a carrier and you do get those droplets on someone else. And if they're wearing a mask, you're still introducing a potential infection to someone else, which is why it's so important that everyone kind of utilizes social distancing. Because it reduces that space. You know how I said you need a meter of space before that droplet spread so if by saying you need to spend six feet of distance from someone that's like meter and some more so nice. <laughs> standard um and then yeah with masking the face shields all that stuff you're preventing yourself from inviting viruses into your system through some of the most vulnerable parts of your body which 
in you know, more or less crude words, like any hole is the best way for anything to get into <laughs> your body. So yeah, your mouth, your nose, your ears, your eyes, anything like that. Gotcha. Well, I'm going to definitely fall on the sword right now. And, um, as I do, and the reason I do is because I have had my opinion changed over time with COVID-19. So at first I was an asshole and I was like, you know what, this, you know, I'm not going to wear a mask. It's just not a big deal. After having it was one thing, fair enough. But once I understood what the actual process of doing that was all about, it just made sense to my mind as to, okay, this is why we're doing these things. Are they frustrating at times? Absolutely. But we're we're trying to accomplish the greater good here. So that was my comment there. And I stand corrected, which I wanted to say on, on air because it's okay to do that if you are someone that feels that you started off somewhere and then are at a different spot now. But uh, Cole, go ahead. I, I believe you had a question for our guest. Yeah. So Beth, you brought up hand sanitizer really quick. And I, I just have a quick question about that because that is something that maybe people like, and, and I, I'm one that I, you know, there are some things that I just can't stand the smell of, or maybe just like texture wise, I'm a big texture person and the texture can feel weird. Is there, and maybe you can quantify this or maybe you can't, I'll leave that totally up to you. You're the expert. Um, is washing your hands with soap, you know, the, like diligently the way that you're maybe, maybe you're taught in elementary school. I know I was, we were literally taught how to, how to wash your hands in elementary school with soap is, is that versus hand sanitizer? Is there one that's better than the other? Obviously, you know, the, the more advantageous route would be probably both, but if maybe one is not available or one's not present at the time. Is there one that's maybe better off or better for us than the other? That's an excellent question. Um, I'm so happy that you asked it actually. So the rule of thumb is if you can utilize both, utilize both. Um, the hand sanitizer is a great bridge to the gap because sometimes you're in a place where there's just not a sink or, you know, you don't have soap and water to utilize. Um, it's more portable especially with, you know, I know, I don't know if you guys have seen them, but like they like Bath and Body Works makes like a portable little hand sanitizer thing you can put on kids backpacks and stuff like that now. So um, I think that a lot of people really enjoy hand sanitizer because of the fact that you can take it everywhere and it doesn't require soap and water. Um, but as far as just cleanliness goes, you know, preventing infection, things like that, they say to utilize hand sanitizer if you do not have any bodily fluids on your hands. Um, and you can do it three times before you need to wash your hands with soap and water. So um, if you do, for instance, like every time you use the bathroom, you don't want to just use hand sanitizer. You want to use soap and water because you may have come into contact with bodily fluids. So um, I would say that utilizing both is just really appropriate because there are certain strains of um actually getting a little bit away from COVID, but there are certain strains of bacteria that do become resistant to hand sanitizer if you utilize it too often. So that's why they want you to switch it up. Um, as far as COVID goes, uh, preventing viral infections, my recommendation would be to do the three times hand sanitizer and then wash your hands rule of thumb if you can. But truly, if you wash your hands and never use hand sanitizer, as long as you're doing it frequently, that's still protecting you more so than just not doing anything at all. Hand sanitizer is not something that's required to prevent COVID-19. It's just something that has been recommended because 
Well, if the other option is just to not wash your hands at all, for some people, it's so much better than nothing. It's one way that you can kind of overcome a barrier. So it's it's been recommended. Sure, absolutely. Uh, I, I figured as much, um, but obviously it means a lot more coming from you. It means a lot more for people to hear it coming from you. So uh, I, I figured we'd get that out there in the open. But Nick, I'll turn it back to you, man. Keep us on, keep us on track. So Beth, another thing that me and you have talked about actually prior to this that really I held a strong stance on until we had talked more in into details is the the difference between one's physical fitness, nutrition, health regimen, even their I think we had talked maybe their social economic status as well too. Um, all of these things and how that goes into the spread of COVID-19. So I'm someone that exercises very regularly. I would say I have a pretty clean diet. Uh, we're not going to count the last week because I've been eating out quite a bit. But post that, I've been really just trying to hone in uh, as we get you know the ability to get outside. What does that do, if anything, in comparison to people that are getting the virus, their overall ability to withstand the virus, or does not real, or does it even really matter at all? I mean, definitely, there are aspects of health um, that do correlate directly with the level of severity of COVID nineteen. Granted, nothing in medicine is ever going to be like a hundred percent. If you have this, then you'll get this. But you see some tendencies, you do see some statistical um, happenings, if you will, that would indicate that negative health outcomes uh, are associated with just like a lack of health. But something that I feel very passionately about in my work is challenging people's um, sort of conception of what health is. Because media, um, has just, you know, over time, um, it's sort of become, you know, when you think of health, you think of like green smoothies and a guy with six pack abs and like somebody who runs Iron Man or whatever. But I don't even know if you run that, to be honest. But um, <laughs> Jeremy, what I said, it reminds me a lot of you as she was describing that person. Oh, yeah, 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 for sure. Especially the Iron Man part. <laughs> So um, as far as health goes, health encompasses a lot of different facets. And I actually want to ask you guys a question. So Nick explained um, a lot of things that we would consider to be the portion of the health pie um, that describe individual person behaviors. So when you think of health as a pie, what percentage would you say the piece is for individual behaviors as far as like your health outcome? Let's do coal first. Okay. Um, as far as a pie, I would say individual behavior. Cause right off the bat, and I'm sure there are more parts to the pie. Right off the bat, though, I feel like genetics may play a huge part in this. But individual behavior, I would say 33%. Okay. 33%. All right, Jeremy, what do you think? I'm going to go... 48 we're gonna make some weird number 48 okay now po or pre this conversation beth i would have said 80 percent so just to be honest i would have said 80 percent of that pie is your own personal ability to take care of yourself now we'll turn it back to you 
Yeah, no, that's, that is a great. And I'm so happy that you were honest with the listeners about that, because I think that um, your personal kind of conception of what health was, that individual behaviors make up the largest portion of pie, if not almost the whole pie, um, that is really common in a lot of things that I see with my patients and just with people that I talk to out in the real world, if you will, outside of the hospital, I call it the real world. That's, um, yeah, so according to determinantsofhealth.org, which is um, an organization that kind of focuses on studies based on social determinants of health, um, individual behaviors make up about 36% of your total Ooh, health. Oh, close, close. I almost had it right on the nose. That was excellent. I was really impressed. Um, but knowing that, that kind of shocks your system when you think about the fact that really, at the end of the day, things that you have the most control over only impacts, you know, roughly a third of your overall health. There's so many facets to health, some of which you can't really even control. Um, so another thing that I want to touch on is, like you said, you thought maybe genetics play a huge role in your health. You're very right. Genetics is the third largest slice of the pie. Um, that comes in at about 22%. So, I mean, we see a lot of prevalence of family history. Um, if you have someone in your direct family, your immediate family who has an illness, you're immediately at an increased risk of contracting that same thing. Um, so a lot of what I see too is um, various cancers or diabetes. You could have people that are very fit and who they do, they eat really well, they exercise regularly, um, but you still have kids that come in and they do have type one diabetes because that's genetics. It has nothing to do with, you can't exercise away you know, certain illnesses. So that is a huge portion of health is understanding, you know, what am I at risk for based on my genetics and how can I prevent those before I get into that portion of it, I will finish telling you the pieces of the pie because that's really, really important to understand. The second largest piece of the pie is actually social circumstances. Um, and so what social circumstances kind of encompasses is we have um, people's work conditions, we have their early childhood education and development, um, we have your culture, your traditions that you grew up in, um, what's your socioeconomic status? What is your citizenship status, your sexual orientation, your gender identity? Um, you know, there's so many factors in that. And a lot of it, really, you don't have a lot of say over. You don't have the ability to change that. Um, historically speaking, there are some arguments that, yeah, you can change some of that stuff, but it's that's really not. It's easier said than done. It's your social circumstances are huge. Um, so, for example, if you are someone who makes um, you know money that would put you below the poverty line, you might not have the ability to afford to buy a car. And if you don't have a car, um, you might have to rely on public transportation. So, let's say you need to take the bus in order to get to the doctor's office, but there's no doctor's offices off your bus stop. Are you ever going to get to the doctor? How are you ever going to be able to take control of your health? You know? And as far as personal circumstances go, how much of your individual behavior is related directly to your social circumstances? 
how many of us are able to afford a gym membership and are able to avoid or to afford healthy food um, because of the fact that we make enough money to do so. So a lot of people don't want to politicize health or healthcare, but it is important that we understand how that does come into play, how that does directly impact you know, each other. So yes, the second largest piece of the pie is your social circumstances at 24%. Other facets of um, the pie, the, the big health pie, would be um, medical care. So that's 11%. So some examples of that would be just that if you, once again, don't have access to that care, if you don't have a high quality of care in your area, um, one facet of medical care, this part of the pie that's very important to me, is called healthcare literacy. That's something that you and I were working on right now. That is encouraging people to understand health, encouraging people to understand illness and to understand what the facts are, what's not true, um, and what they can do to take control over their health and what maybe they can't do to control their health. So that's a huge, huge, huge thing right now that's just really important that we work on. Oh, and I'm... Oh. What's up? Sorry. No, go ahead. I was just going to say, so we just actually finished up our book series on Andrew Yang's universal basic income. But what's interesting about that is that really, I mean, it was touched on, but very, very lightly it was touched on. It just kind of addressed healthcare um, just on how it's in not necessarily the best shape ever. But uh, one thing that stood out to me, Beth, when me and you were talking before this conversation was I had never really thought about like not being a middle-class kid that has had access and ability to pay for these things on a very regular basis. I've never had to overcome adversity where I'm the only person in my family who may be able to take a bus, which would I then have to walk a couple miles just to get into the doctor and then let alone insurance and all that stuff too. So that really opened my mind when we first talked about that. So I, I do appreciate you talking into depth about how this breaks down. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that is a huge, I guess I should say, this is one of my favorite parts about doing my job and being able to share my knowledge with folks like you guys, because I get to see all of these different pieces of the pie in so many different people's lives because I get to take care of them. And it's a really humbling experience. It's a really amazing experience. And some people don't mean to, to be inconsiderate. They don't mean to be ignorant. It's truly just that they've never had to think about it it's good to kind of challenge those thoughts and it's good to be open-minded and it's good to accept all of this information and to kind of reconsider your perceptions of health and of health care and of just everything that has to do with you know society's perception of all of these things because they're all so interwoven and so interconnected um that is why some people suffer is just that maybe sometimes they're not taken into consideration Oh, yeah, it's, in, it's great to be able to talk. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And and I mean, that's the whole reason why we wanted to get you on here. Being a, a fitness guru myself 
early on in my college years and then a little bit post-college, I had just thought that, you know, the real key to getting in shape was working out, focusing on your nutrition, things of this nature, and doing that consistently over time would get you to that level. However, I've come to really realize that there are so many different programs out there that are made for specific people. And I know people get frustrated because sometimes they'll do a program, they won't see any results, and the person right next to them will lose 45 pounds and just be in the best shape of their life. And that is, I know we're trending a little bit away from the actual COVID-19 topic and conversation, but I do think your personal health has something to play into that, like sleeping and getting and all that other good stuff. But it is worth exploring. And to your point, being educated to your body and yourself, maybe your genetics and what your family history is, but then also like figuring out what works for you because what works for you may not work best for the other, uh, other person or other people that you're around too. So um, as far as this conversation goes, I would want to continue to to go, but we only have so much time here. One thing that I think is very, very important to talk about with you and not to get too morbid, but you have actually worked on a floor um, dealing with these patients directly. Um, and have you experienced any fatalities? If you have, can you just walk me through what it's like to like work in an, in that environment without crossing any barriers, of course? Hey, State Street gang, we're going to steal you away real quick. Uh, Cole, I actually have a couple of promos to run by you. What do you got, Nick? I'm excited to hear. So the first one is our partners over at Driftless Quality Wear actually have a new website coming out, and you can find them at driftlesswaltywear.com. No way. Dude, that's awesome. So how does State Street factor into that? Yeah, great question. So for all the folks that haven't purchased anything on their website, go ahead and prior to checking out, if you enter State Street, uh, you'll actually get a 10% discount off the entire cart. Okay. What kind of things do they have? Do they have like outdoor wear since it's getting cold here? Yeah, great question. And it really is getting cold. So they have crewnecks, long sleeves. I actually got a long sleeve myself, beanies. Uh, They even go as far as camping mugs, which I think that's awesome. Yeah, no, that's awesome. So tell me again how I get this and where I need to go. Yeah, so go ahead and type in State Street at checkout and receive 10% off your entire cart purchase. Cool, man, I can't wait. Let's get back to the show. Thanks, guys. So to answer your question, yes, um, I have worked um, on a COVID unit in, I would say, the fall. So between October and December of 2020, that was when the Midwest, more specifically Eastern Iowa, where I live and work, um, we had a pretty significant spike of uh, COVID-19 cases, as well as just the overall severity of the patients that we were seeing. It was it was the worst I had ever seen um, to date. And there was certainly an elevated number of fatalities as well, which logically is to be expected when you see such an increase of just encounters as well as the severity of disease. Um, But it still, you never really get used to that. When it happens, it's, never want to say it's easier when you know that something's coming. But um, for example, my particular unit that I work on when we're not taking COVID patients, um, when we don't have any COVID patients on the floor, we do sometimes take hospice patients. Hospice is a type of care where you know the patient is more or less going to pass away in about six months. So a lot of the care that you do is very comfortable. Um, It's very spiritual. It's, It's a very peaceful type of care. 
But when someone's acutely ill um, and there is hope that they will recover, there's a certain type of sadness um, and a certain type of humility that comes with their death. Um, it was difficult to see so many people pass away in such a short period of time and to continue to hear that across the country and across the state and in other areas, so many nurses like myself had to deal with this every single day as well. Um, but it was one of the most humbling experiences of my life. I'm grateful that I got to go through it. I'm grateful that I got to be the person that held so many people's hands as they took their last breath. Um, but it, it doesn't get easier and to have seen those moments firsthand to have been able to see what that looked like um, in some people. It feel much more strongly about spreading information and knowledge and to say, you know, yeah, it, it is really important that you social distance and wear your mask because you never know if that's going to be you. You don't. And you never know if you could be giving something to someone else's beloved family member or anything like that. It's one of those things where you just don't realize how important it is until you're in it, until you experience it firsthand. So yeah, um, that is accurate. People, people die. Um, it's, right. it's a, a heck of an illness and it's not fun. So it's, it's good to keep in mind just kind of significance of that aspect of COVID and how sensitive sometimes we have to be around what we say about COVID. Beth, I'm just curious, uh, the general perception with all this, and again, as we talked about at the beginning, there is some bias that comes along with this. There is just wrong information. But the general perception is that, oh, it's just, it's older people, people in their elder states, and people with health issues. Talk, if, if you can, and, and please do, speak on that, the general perception, if that's right, if that's wrong. And then obviously, you know, we can't have you share individual experiences but what as as a nurse just internally is it jarring when it is someone who is maybe deemed healthy or deemed younger or not in the category of higher risk um and, and you have to be with them through those moments absolutely um so my unit just to give you a little bit of background does not take pediatric patients so we don't take kids anyone under the age of 18 and we are not an intensive care unit. So um, if someone would be on a ventilator, which is the machine that a lot of people understand is called life support, where it breathes for you, they would be in, in a different area of the hospital. So the patients that I take care of would be um, the next step down in the level of severity. So these people would need to be on high flow oxygen. They would need to be on various antiviral medications through the IV. Um, they would need to be monitored on continuous pulse ox, um, which is what Jeremy had earlier, that little thing on his finger that tells you how much oxygen you have in your body at any given time. Um, so it's, it's important to understand that I did not see anyone pass away who was younger than probably 50. I certainly took care of quite a few people who were in their 20s and their 30s and their 40s who had maybe previously been in an intensive care unit. 
or who maybe were headed to the intensive care unit because things were not going well. I um, would say in general, most of the fatalities that I witnessed personally firsthand, um, they were elderly individuals. Because yeah, I mean, with any illness, the elderly are gonna be at a very significant disadvantage and that completely comes down to um, environment, genetics, all that fun stuff. Their immune systems are weakened um, as everyone's do with age. What is your physical body? But that doesn't mean that you're prone to not getting it. And that certainly doesn't mean that you're prone to not having a very, very, very significant illness um, just because you're not an older person. It's it's very difficult. You know, as someone who is a young person, when you have to take care of someone who's very ill and is like your age, but I see it, certainly see it. I appreciate you kind of sharing that with us. Obviously, you know there there are things that you can't say, or and obviously being in certain parts uh, of a hospital and. And obviously doing your job, I'm sure, yeah, you, you can only see a certain amount of things or only a number of things. Uh, so I do, I do really appreciate you kind of sharing that and just giving us a, a little bit, a little bit, a little bit of a, a peek through your eyes of kind of what's that, what that's like. Uh, Nick, I know we do only have Beth though for, for a short amount of period. She is a busy person. Um, so keep us on track. Uh, I appreciate though, Beth, all the questions that have been answered. I appreciate everything kind of up to this point. It's been, it's been really, really great. So Nick, keep us going. Will do. Yes. And in a perfect world, we would talk for, uh, you know, roughly three hours and we'd be able to put it out to millions of people, but, uh, every podcast has its infancies, um, and, and their growth and journey. But so I have a couple more questions for you, Beth. Um, and these guys do as well, or I guess addressing their questions. Um, just for the sake of time, though, let's. Uh, I'll try to be as concise as possible so we can fill in as much as we can per the time frame. One thing that we talked about was viruses, I believe, so please correct me if I'm wrong, they come in waves, was it? And throughout a, a, across the United States, I don't know if you recall us talking about how or why it hits an area for so such a hard time frame, and then it kind of escapes and goes to another area. Could you just elaborate on like maybe why that is or the nature of like how it goes through and comes in, in waves? Sure. So, um, and I will say this too, when we had the conversation that we had, that was uh, pretty much in like the vaccination infancy phase. So it's a little different now that people are starting to get vaccinated and it's different for the better. Um, but prior to the vaccine, so pretty much throughout the year of 2020, uh, we saw bigger surges of COVID in different regional areas in the United States, uh, roughly every three months. So I think a lot of people remember back in like March when it first kind of came to the United States and the media was really reporting on it super hard. Um, that was like New York, kind of the East Coast was hit really difficult, really hard. Um, and I know a lot of, so I work with a couple of travel nurses. Um, those are nurses who work in 13 week contracts and they can travel all across the country and just kind of float where they're needed. A lot of travel nurses that I worked with, um, they were getting offered huge sums of money to go out and work in those intensive care units in New York because they were drowning in COVID patients. Um, and then, you know, things got better as they do. 
um, roughly in, I believe it was, it was the summer. So maybe June, July in there, we had another search. Um, that one, I don't know that that one was localized so much to any particular regional area, but just across the country, we saw a surge in June and July. I mean, even in Iowa here, we saw a surge in June and July. Um, but the Midwest certainly had its day in the fall. Um, that is when Iowa, um, I believe Illinois, Chicago was hit pretty hard at that time in roughly October, November. And then most recently um, in the winter surge, which would have been uh, like January, February-ish, still kind of going on, California and the West Coast is being hit pretty hard. So in general, when you have regional outbreaks like that, or not necessarily outbreaks, but just a uh, heightened incidence um, in a regional area. It kind of goes back to like what we were talking about earlier, where do you have something that is contained? Does prevent it from spreading outside of the regional area, but you have to understand too that when you contain an illness, you're keeping it contained into one specific area. And sometimes that spreads like wildfire. So if you're seeing an increase in prevalence in a regional area, could be that, you know, we're still not quite seeing people follow the guidelines, um, especially with some of those outbreaks in the Midwest here. That was around the holidays. So it's important to imagine, you know, how many people went home and saw their families for Thanksgiving and Christmas and all of these things. And even if they wore their masks, even if, you know, you do use hand sanitizer and you do social distance, Coming into any contact with anyone, you're always at some level of risk for contracting the illness or giving it to someone else. So it surges because of the fact that the virus is just coming into contact with so many people so quickly at a certain period of time. Um, I think too, and this is just me speculating, this is certainly not factual at this point in time, but um, once we have a surge, I've noticed that a lot of patients and their families and people that I talk to, um, when it becomes more spoken about, because there's so many more cases um, during those surges, people become more comfortable with following the guidelines. They're like, oh, crap, like, Stuff's getting really bad again. We really do have to buckle down. So they do, they buckle down. Um, but when it gets good again, sometimes we think, oh, we're in the clear. Maybe this is it. Maybe it's finally over. Um, things sometimes get a little more lax and we do see another surge. So um, that is not all to say that that is completely based on people's personal choices. It's not. Viruses also mutate um, much like anything else in biology. Natural selection suggests that in order to survive, you have to change. So they do mutate. Um, COVID-19 actually doesn't mutate at a rate that's even nearly as fast as influenza or HIV. It's important to understand that it does. So for instance, um, with vaccines, which I know is a hot button topic, the reason we get an influenza vaccine every year is because influenza mutates roughly every year. And so in order to prevent yourself from getting it every year, the vaccine has um, what epidemiologists have studied and have determined is that year's strain that we're gonna try to protect everyone against. So um, because of the newness of COVID-19, if you will, um, 
the beginning of all of this was difficult to predict those surges because we didn't know how quickly. So all that it spread and then after that, how quickly it mutated. So now that we have a vaccine out there, now that we've done, you know, a year and a half worth of research, we're getting on top of it. Um, I haven't seen a surge as bad as the one that we saw in the fall here in Iowa. So I'm hopeful. I am. Well, that's great to hear because I know a lot of people um, were are hoping for a more safe future. We'll just leave it at that. Um, so we actually sent you some questions. Um, I'm not sure if the guys have those maybe right in front of them or if, if you had them pre-recorded before we go on, but I did want to just touch on one or two of those per guy. So Cole, if we, we can start with you, if you have that Beth in front of you, the question that he had sent over, um, or Cole, if you just want to share it real quick with her, we can, we can get it answered. Okay. Um, yeah, so I, Beth, I'm not sure if you have them uh, in front of you, but I have mine. So I will just ask my first one uh, and we can kind of go down the line. So because of COVID-19, what should we expect the future of large group gatherings to look like? And is the vaccine truly something or is it is the vaccine truly the only thing standing between now and getting back to those type of gatherings? That's an excellent question. Um, so one thing that's important to understand about COVID-19 and the vaccines and how that will impact large gatherings is in order for vaccines to work appropriately the way that we want them to, in order to essentially attempt to eradicate disease, um, we have to make sure that we are able to utilize um, a concept called herd immunity. So that means that anybody in a given area um, is a percentage of people are immune to an illness. They have enough antibodies that if they were to encounter the illness, their bodies would be like, nah, sis, not today, and it would fight it off. So the best way to utilize herd immunity, the best way to achieve herd immunity um, is through vaccination because vaccination is better than natural immunity in the sense that you, I mean, there's so many people that get very deathly ill that have comorbidities, which a comorbidity is like an illness secondary to a previous illness. We don't want that. We don't want people to die. So um, even though we have seen like some side effects that people don't always love with the COVID vaccine, um, if you have not gotten ill with COVID or are not currently ill with COVID, getting the vaccine um, has higher reward than the risk of just building up natural immunity from getting COVID. So as far as large gatherings go, like you said, um, for right now, we just kind of have to push forward with all of the precautions set out by the CDC, which is the masking, um, the social distancing, keeping your crew to a very small number if you can, um, until we achieve higher rates of immunity and, and until we can achieve herd immunity. For now, continue on as normal. <laughs> I don't know how long it will take to achieve herd immunity. That relies very much so on people's willingness to get the vaccine, um, people continuing to get sick, because you do, you know, you get natural immunity from getting sick, but it just takes time to figure out. Um, and as far as herd immunity goes, every illness is different as to what the percentage of the population needs to be, um, like with that antibody, um, in order to be successful. So for example, I think we were at about 80% when 
when we eradicated polio in the United States for herd immunity, but something like measles, uh, that's like 95% you have to have immunity for. So they're not still quite sure what the percentage number needs to be for COVID-19, but long story short, if you can get vaccinated, they recommend it. If you can't, try your best to not get sick. Follow the guidelines. So, so for now, they're recommending that, everybody follow it. That kind of rolls into to the second question I'll pose for you then, and then I'll turn it to Jeremy. How, and, and this is more so kind of a blanket question, and, and so maybe it's a softball, maybe it's not. Uh, you, can, you can give us the, the best answer. How much peace of mind should the vaccine give? You kind of just said that if you haven't been sick with COVID-19 and then you get the vaccine, you're like, that's gold. That's great. That's huge. Uh, so I, I guess that's just kind of my question. How much peace of mind really should people have getting it or if they're about to get it, they've already gotten it uh, with, with this vaccine coming out? So it's important to understand that when you have antibodies to an illness with the vaccine, that doesn't mean that you can't get sick. Mm -hmm. An antibody just means that it's a trigger for your body. So if uh, the virus comes into your body, like we talked about how the cells will encompass the virus and then the virus wants to give it the DNA. So if that happens, body will trigger an immune response faster if you have an antibody it will say whoa this is an invader we don't want this in here faster you've been sick before or had the vaccine so there's a sense of peace of mind in that theoretically you will have a reduced severity of illness if you were to get sick that doesn't mean that you can't get sick which i think is a huge misconception um and that's how it's always been. I mean, even with influenza vaccines, if you get the vaccine, you can still get influenza. It doesn't mean that you can't. It just means that if you were to get sick, probably not going to be like as sick as you would if you just didn't have any antibodies to it at all. So there's some peace of mind in knowing that the risk being so significantly ill that you would need um, you know, maybe like a long-term hospital stay or something like that, it's decreased pretty significantly by having the vaccine. We still have to take precautions to make sure we're not spreading it because we could still be spreaders um, and to make sure that we're not getting sick even on top of that. Because like I said, you don't want comorbidities related to COVID-19 to have other illnesses pop up as a result. Um, even if COVID, if you get it and it's not that bad, it's just something to keep an eye on. So good. And it, we want people to get vaccinated for those reasons. But for now, yeah, kind of just have to keep doing the Masking, hand sanitizer, social distancing, because you just never know. Jeremy, I will turn it to you. Yeah, I, I don't know if I remember my question, but I think I do. And if I don't, I, it's a question that I have. So um, do we know what causes like these wide ranges of, of side effects that we, we hear about? I should say, I, I don't know if it's something that it's, it's normal to vaccines. I like I get vaccinated every year. I don't have like wild side effects. I, I. I, I presume that's because I'm I'm more healthy, but maybe if I went out and got the COVID vaccine, I don't know if I would get these large amounts of side effects. So is there like a specific thing that causes like these side effects, I guess you would see uh, with the COVID-19 vaccine? Yeah, so it's actually very simple. The COVID vaccine is a two-dose vaccine, okay? So the first time you get the vaccine, that's the first instance in which you're exposed to the antibodies um, that the vaccine is attempting to give you. Okay. So the second time you get your vaccine 
which is when people are saying that they're having all of these crazy side effects, that's your body's way of having an immune response. That's how we know the vaccine's working. So if you feel like crap after you get the second vaccine, it means that your body knows like, hey, whoa, we've seen this before. We don't want this here. This is COVID. But I think keep in mind though, too, is that COVID vaccines don't have COVID in them. There's no live virus. There's nothing that can make you sick in the COVID vaccine. The COVID vaccine is called an mRNA vaccine. mRNA just stands for messenger RNA. And RNA is it's really scientific. Um, basically, in human terms, messenger RNA is like instructions. It's like a recipe for your genes to know, hey, this is what you need to know and what you don't need to know about if you see this virus, it's a bad guy. We don't want it. So the fact that people are having these side effects after the second one, it means that the first vaccine was successful in getting the message to your nucleus, to the parts of your cells that contain all of your genetic information that tell your cells what to do and what not to do. Um, so yeah, it sucks. You have a fever that you have joint pain and muscle pain and all that fun stuff. But in the grand scheme of things, it's really a mild to moderate reaction. Um, it doesn't mean that you're sick with COVID, even if sometimes the signs and symptoms are the same. It just means that your body is having an immune response because it knows, hey, like, this is what you told me the first time to keep an eye out for. And seeing that you're giving me the same instructions seems sketchy. So it just kind of sends like a, hey, we should fight this off of a response. Awesome. Sounds good. Yeah, I was, I didn't know if it was a good thing or a bad thing. I, I just, I just knew it happened. So it, it's good to hear that, you know, if you, it, you have a, a moderate effect to the, the second shot, it means your body did the right thing. Exactly. Yes. And I also appreciate Beth, you putting that into human terms as well, too, that, uh, your very intelligent brain is allowing us maybe non-intelligent individuals to follow along with you. So thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> Good Lord. Yes. Well, so, I have, or go ahead. Sorry. No, 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 you're totally fine. You go ahead. Okay. I was just going to say for my portion, I am just for the sake of time going to have Cole do his four questions. So thank you so much as of right now for just going into the level of detail and really laying things out for us. I'm sure our residents have appreciated it, but we are going to totally turn the mojo of the conversation for Mr. Szynski's four questions and I'll let him introduce this portion. Hey, State Street residents, this is Cole. We are so proud to continue our partnership with Chi-Town Blankets, a nonprofit based in Chicago, Illinois. This movement, started by our good friend Dom Hilsheim, has grown to over thousands of blankets being delivered to those in need. If you want to get involved, go to ChiTownBlankets.com or find them on social media to learn how to donate and get involved. That's C-H-I-T-O-W-N-B-L-A-N-K-E-T-S. You can also listen to episodes from Dom or one of his executive board members, Jack Thode, and learn more about how the movement got started and what it truly means to them. Everyone deserves to be warm. Yes, Beth, this is one of our favorite parts when we do interviews with folks. This is one of the reasons we love having people on because we get weird questions, we get wacky answers. Um, we do this with every guest. 
Some of the questions may have something to do with what we talked about this evening. Uh, other questions will have literally nothing to do with anything we've talked about. You'll be like, where did you pull that question from? Uh, and it's simply from my brain, the internet, uh, people in passing, other conversations, questions I've been asked. So if you're ready, I have them prepared uh, and we can get underway. Go for it. Okay. If you had to create your own meal type of gum. So if you've seen Willy Wonka, he creates a piece of gum that has like a four course meal, right? So if you could design this piece of gum and it was an appetizer, a meal, and then a dessert, what would those three, ap what would the appetizer, what would the meal, and what would the dessert be in that gum? The appetizer would be spinach artichoke dip. Spinach artichoke dip. Oh, the meal, though, the meal, though, I mean, I am a huge fan of like, a marinated chicken breast and vegetable kind of combo, like some sauteed squash and green beans action. Like, absolutely. Uh, did you say dessert? Was that the last one? Yep. Dessert as well. Okay. I'm just going to like really throw it out there. Maple glazed donut, because why not? Like, it's totally random. It really doesn't even fit the rest of the meal, but that's, that's just good stuff. A warm maple glazed donut, though, like that's yes. hard to beat, I feel like. <laughs> Secondly, kind of in the same realm of questioning, but a little bit of a different question. If you had to characterize just yourself as a flavor, what would it, that flavor be? Oh, God. Um, the flavor. I would say. I'm gonna go lemon because I'm bright and zesty. Mmm, very good. That's a <laughs> that's a good answer. That's a good answer. Um, number three, if you could come up with a slogan, or if you could pick the very last thing that you could say kind of you're on your deathbed you're like all right today's the day and this is like my last message whether it be funny whether it be emotional what would you want like that last slogan to be oh god see the first thing that came to my mind which i don't think i would go with but i think it's an honorable mention was if you ain't first or last but i mean oh, i yeah. think <laughs> Uh, one thing that my mom always said to me when I was growing up that I've carried with me for the rest of my life is she always said, take risks, but be accountable. And I think that that's a really good mantra for my life. So I'll, I'll use that as my one legacy. I like that a lot. Nick, I, th I feel like that, like that would almost summarize Nick for me. I think Nick is my, my, he, he is a big risk taker, but I, he he is a, a a pretty accountable dude. Not to say Jeremy's not accountable. Jerry's Jeremy is my get it done guy, but uh, I like that a lot. Last question I have for you, Beth. What is the weirdest question you have asked someone to get to know them better? When was the last time you pooped? <laughs> <laughs> I have to ask my patients that every day. That's awesome. I I can imagine that's the exact way that your patients want to start the day off is talking about that. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> you probably get some wacky answers with that too. 
Oh, absolutely. Abs- I mean, I won't gross you guys out, but sometimes I just ask when and then I get like a whole spiel on like what, where, why. And I'm like, whoa. <laughs> well, maybe no, even the color, maybe even the color. Who knows? Absolutely. <laughs> um, Beth, that's all I have for you as far as four questions goes. Thank you so much for coming on. This was raw. This was data filled. Uh, and, and it was great to just kind of get a firsthand experience, firsthand accounts. Uh, and we, we really appreciate you coming on, taking some time out of your, your busy schedule. Uh, this was a lot of fun. You were fantastic. Uh, we can't thank you enough. So, so much. Absolutely. Thanks for having me guys. Yeah. Thanks for coming on and like teaching me about what's actually happening in my body right now. I, I'm fortunate enough to not have, you know, the, the extreme severe symptoms. So I was able to sit in and, and contribute to the, to the, um, the whole spiel and guys you know if you enjoyed the episode please find us on twitter it is at state street pod instagram is state street pod and facebook is state street podcast beth thank you again so much not only for your time but your expertise and your level of preparation for this interview as well too um i can't remember if we addressed this in the beginning but uh beth did take the time to have quite a few cited documents up before this conversation so the majority of what she was referring to uh was coming from a place of fact which is super exciting because sometimes our opinions can get swayed one way through bias and uh sometimes we need to find ground zero and understanding the actual facts of what's going on so uh again thank you so much i'm also going to give a shout out to your husband alex um, just because it, we're, we're stealing you away from him. Uh, so hope he's doing well. Um, but yes, residents, I hope you guys had a lot of good things to take away or your mind was opened a little bit to some, uh, some good data on COVID-19. Uh, thanks so much. And until next time, guys.